people are intrinsically connected to nature. We as human beings are connected to nature. We are attracted to greenery. We're attracted to the oxygen that it produces. Suddenly our sense of well-being is calmed and we get back to this health. We, we, we draw nutrients and vegetables and, and fruit and all of our, our plant-based diet. We require it to thrive as much as anything else. That's Yeah. We're, we're humans living in it. So the moment we open our eyes and we see all this greenery, it becomes the greatest architectural magnet of all time. Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. My guest today on Talk Design is none other than Jamie Jury. Jamie is a household name in Australia. For those of you around the world that may not know him, he's a horticulturalist and he's a landscape architect and he's responsible for, I don't know, winning over 38 global awards, uh, 12 books, and uh, I think it was 157 um, different uh, primetime TV slots where he has hosted shows. Uh, I could go on and on about all the things that he's done, but the bottom line of it is, is that Jamie's a huge success and he is a, comes from a horticultural and environmentalist background, which is really important. Um, and he's about our planet and sustainability. That's the underlying factor that just keeps coming back around. And we'll post a lot on his socials and stuff like that for you on Talk Design here. But one of the special things to look up would be Jamie's groundswell. That's something that he'll tell us a little bit about. He, I might just leave it at that, Jamie, and just say, welcome to Talk Design, because I could go on and on. And uh, I'd love to ask you some questions. Yeah, sure. How are you, Adrian? Good, good to be here. Really good, man. Really good. Um, and really grateful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great, great to be here. Um, um, someone might have stuck a one in front of that 57 because they're not quite old enough to have done 157 shows, but 57 is... is oh, 57. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're a bit older, it'll be that many. I don't um, know if anyone's made it to that point, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let's start with that. You've got some shows that are coming up that you're just starting to work on, you were telling me about. Um, yeah. No, tell probably, me what's happening. I mean, I'm currently the, the host of House Rules here in Australia, which is a design show that um, where, you know, five houses are renovated by five different couples and then everyone travels as a group and, and renovates each other's homes um, and whoever has the most successful results wins a large pot of cash on top of that. So everyone wins, everyone gets their own house renovated. They're all using, you know, top grade, beautiful, sophisticated materials and, and building innovation from both now and the future. So, so it's in, in some ways, uh, these can be classed as guinea pig type environment <laughs> where, you know, they're, they're, they are coming across new techniques and new building materials all the time, which is great because it's inspiring viewers to get out there and, and be forward thinking and be sustainable and, yeah. um, and look at things like solar passive architecture and those sorts of things that, that, um, that really we should all be looking at in what I call the future build. A absolutely. You know, with this, um, the future build, as you say, it's such a key thing that if we're not looking at how the house presents itself to the landscape and to the environment, we're missing like a huge part of what matters. It's the, yeah. you know, the first thing as a house designer or an architect, you go to the site and you go, what does the site demand of me or what does it require from me yeah. and how do I be sympathetic to it and how do I preserve it and make it special? I mean, there are two facets to that. One is, yes, it should fit within the environment that it's in, but how do we create the lowest impact in that house moving forward, functioning as a daily household? What is the energy consumption? What is the carbon footprint? What does that house leave behind after we're dead and buried? That's, that's the real important point. And if we, yeah. can, if we can tick both boxes, then I think th then we've got a, a truly sustainable build, not something that's just purely built for the local environment, but built for a global environment. Right. So taking it that one step bigger where, you're, yeah, it's, it's everything gets, how do you leave the planet better off for the, for the build? I think some of the case study homes and, you know, the, the Philip Neutras and so forth and the Donald Wexlers of, of our, our previous 
generation, they had it right when they started, you know, developing solar passive architecture, you know, architecture that works with the trade winds, that works with the cross flows, that works with pulling hot air out and cool air in and naturally ventilating the homes rather than relying on fossil fuels to to cool and heat our homes. And if every home on the planet did that, we would not be in the case we're in right now, where we've now lost somewhere around 37 species of Australian animals, um, you know, and, and where 32 of the 50-odd of the states of the US, uh, their state flowers and trees, have actually moved out of their states. They no longer habitate their own states. So, you know, climate change is, is, is something that is upon us, whether we yeah. think whether we think it's caused by humans or not, we do know that we're producing carbon and we do know that carbon is waste and we wouldn't throw rubbish on the streets. So let's not throw it in the atmosphere. Let's clean up our mess and not worry about the finger pointing of where it all came from or how this is impacted. Let's just clean up our own mess. Just get in our own backyard and do what we can do to, yeah, to make it right. And, and I say our own backyard, but also with a global consciousness, like everybody can take a step towards it. Yeah, um, it, you know, it's it's a climate change is not a, a political issue. It should never have been politicised. It's a human rights issue. Yeah, that's what it yeah. is. You know, every human deserves the right for a healthy future. And look, we're we're now seeing uh, our next generation standing up for their rights, which is, I think, quite inspiring. I, I haven't seen any of that in our previous generations. No, I don't think they ever had a platform like the internet to be able to actually amass things either. And 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 thank goodness that they are standing up for it because otherwise uh, if there's still plenty of countries out there that will ignore it and um, that pressure's got to bear down so that we all get, as you say, like you have kids, you leave them this legacy and they leave their kids a legacy and we want them to go on like this. Um, But we want the legacy that they left to be more positive rather than negative as they go. Well, let's just take all the politics out of it because fossil fuels are not going to be there forever. So the more we can start to move towards a renewable resource planet, the more we are going to be sustainable as a race. Yeah. It's human rights. It is human rights. It's actually a really lovely, lovely way of reframing it because it's just politicised like crazy. But when you say, <laughs> bless you. <laughs> I'm probably the only horticulturalist on the planet that, uh, that gets hay fever. Gets hay fever. <laughs> didn't, you, didn't you put that in your sort of like thing when you went, I'm going to be a horticulturalist? Yeah, yeah, but I don't need to sneeze all the time. I know. And- Spring, spring has sprung here in Sydney, so, uh, you know, pollen's... Yeah, are- it has here where I am, is on the Sunshine Coast as well. It's crazy. It's like there's everything's flowering like nuts. It's nice yeah. to see the water. That's beautiful. Like, yeah, my wife took about a dozen photos the other day. She went for a walk down in uh, Malula Bar, and mm. she, she goes every morning, and she came back, and she had all these photos of, of new blooms, which is just, yeah. Just beautiful, really beautiful. Jamie, you were saying with your design philosophy and uh, earlier, like a- about the sustainability, but also about this big project thing where you take over the whole project. And maybe if you'd tell us about like that journey of, of creating the base that the landscape gets put on yeah. as opposed to just, you know, the landscape being separated or into yeah. separate chunks, that'd be really cool. Yeah. So, well, let's just talk about, let, let's, let's reverse it right back to the functional analysis of the site. You know, right from the get-go, we, we, we've been hired to do commercial landscapes all over the world, you know, and, and we've worked in 30-odd countries now. And what, what has frustrated me over the years is that we're, we're being subjected to a design that is not sympathetic to the landscape that has been pitched or that um, has been promised to the stakeholders and, and the recipients and the guests that are to use this, this dwelling. And, you know, you get these lovely 3D images of fantasy landscapes that actually will not be sustainable, will not survive and can't survive uh, upon the structures that they are being proposed to, to live on. And so, you know, you see these fantastic images of, you know, 40 or 50 storey high landscapes, uh, you know, clad over these beautiful urban dwellings, um, yep. their farms and so forth, and they simply don't work. They don't mm. They're fantasy landscapes. And I think what's great about 3D these days is we're able to give the clients, the developers and all the stakeholders and the investors this immediate gratification that, yes, this is going to be the greenest development on the planet. I'm so excited about this. And then when it actually reaches our filter, we go, mm, guys, have you, have you, I think you better 
you know, rethink this. <laughs> think, think there's a few gaps in the, in the plan. That simply won't grow in, in 50 knot winds at yep. 20 stories high. And they simply won't grow in 30 millimetres of soil on, on your slabs um, because you haven't engineered the slabs thick enough to take the soil weight or the water weight and you haven't actually thought about where the water's going to go and where it's going to arrive and how fast it's going to evaporate. So, you know, probably 15 years ago, uh, we were approached um, by the Sheridan Hotel Group and the developers that were doing a, um, a large-scale Sheridan Hotel in Spain called Salobre Golf Resort and Spa and we were asked to get involved in not just the landscape but also some of the architectural uh, side of the concept side of the architecture and um, you know the site was very very barren there was a lot of excavation they'd been exploding the site with rock and so forth and how do you then start to invest a landscape into a site that's quite frankly looks like a war zone yeah it looks like an old quarry or something yeah yeah, and so if you think about the the way that light falls yep. and you think about trying to design a landscape in a crater, you've, you've subjected that plant to only a small spectrum of light that's going to fall between 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock, right? Yeah, as opposed to maybe 4 a.m. until 7 a.m. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so let's invert that crater to a pyramid Yep. then see how much sun permeates across a building that's shaped like a pyramid. Well, now we're starting to talk about a landscape and 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 a building that works cohesively together. I interviewed Stefano Boeri um, some time ago out of Italy, who was responsible for two dw- two high-rise dwellings called Bosco Verticale uh, in Milan. And I watched these being built over a period of five years. And he was able to build 38 acres of landscape on two 21 high-storey buildings. And that, to me, was absolutely inspirational. And essentially what he did was he reverse-engineered what the plants needed, how much light needed to fall on those balconies, how thick the slabs needed to be to sustain the water wet weight of the the, the plant base, the soil basis, which mm-hmm. was five to seven hundred millimeters deep on those slabs. And then he was able to grow full size trees on the balconies of the entire building. And guess what? Then he had this vertical forest that sat on the perimeter of the balconies, and suddenly the dwellings, the apartments didn't need curtains anymore because yeah. the curtains had been full to the exterior of the building and they were now replaced with that vertical landscape. Well, that started me really thinking. And and Stefano Boeri actually is, is, is someone you, the world really needs to watch because he has then gone on to China um, and developed these incredible forests, urban forests that are a series of pyramidical shaped buildings where light falls on every balcony. And when light falls on every balcony, suddenly the building disappears and we're now getting back to the original landscape that was there before Maine arrived. It's right. completely grown over. It's a habitat. It's, it's, um, it's a series of microclimates with valleys and hills, just like the mountains that were there before we excavated, right? So if we can start to think about buildings that are shaped in such a way where we get maximum light permeation mm-hmm. and maximum maximum ventilation, well, then we're starting to get a, what I would call a symbiotic um, dwelling that, that, that puts the same amount of balance into the landscape as it does to the architecture itself. And that, Absolutely. Was, the, that was the philosophy that started us off 15 years ago in Spain, and we've then gone on and done concept architecture and landscape architecture for a whole range of hotels and resorts around the world, and more recently for one up in Port Douglas, um, which has been very, very exciting. The whole thing was based off the Nautilus shell. It's still in the works, and we're we're still in the finer details of, of arranging those rooms, but it'll, it'll be around 253 rooms, and it's a very exciting dwelling that'll be you know, sustainable. Um, it'll be a very, very green development and, and it'll embrace all the sorts of philosophies that people tr- travel to, to Port Douglas to experience. You know, people want that beautiful Queensland landscape. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and they want to they look and feel and touch the plants that are endemic to that special part of the world. Well, it's like being able to almost go to the Daintree without being in the Daintree or, well, you yeah. know, like it, it, it's it's... It's there. It's in this resort environment that you're in. Yeah. So you've got the comforts of that, but you've also got this amazing sustainability, and yeah. you're you're touching nature. Yes. You know, the thing that COVID has probably 
highlighted to us all is is the need for nature beyond i mean who would have ever thought but people have just got outdoors and they've craved outdoors and that's been a a wonderful side effect of it yeah 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 so for us that you know creating that initial vision is really important because once that concept's been bedded down then you know the architects of record then move on to phases you know three four and five and and start to actually document the, the hotel and so forth that we usually collaborate. Then they've got a much easier job at creating a, a symbiotic landscape and building that will actually deliver all of the visual promises that they've made to their guests, to the managers, yes. to the recipients, to the locals, you know, because we got very, very tired of all of these, you know, fantasy buildings that were just suddenly rendered with greenery. <laughs> uh, and then you know we're, we're we're stuck with the job of actually making these things survive, and, and and it's not necessarily sustainable to make them survive because they the environment can't um, nurture the plant. Yeah, because the the soil structure is not there, the drainage isn't there, the light permeation is not there, and therefore the oxygen, the trace elements, and the nutrients, and everything else that the plant needs to thrive is just not there. Yeah. I also visited a beautiful piece of architecture called Candelama about 15 years ago. It was designed by one of my heroes called Jeffrey Bawa. Um, oh, Jeff- yes. Jeffrey Bawa was who I would call the pioneer of what I affectionately wrote a book on called The Outdoor Room uh, yep. 16 years ago now. And he was a lawyer until the age of 38, and then he decided to become an architect. And he became the most renowned architect in Sri Lanka and went on to design Government House. And yep. what, what's beautiful about Candelama is it's now won seven environmental awards. You don't actually see a hotel, you see a landscape. People are intrinsically connected to nature. We as human beings are connected to nature. We are attracted to greenery, we're attracted to the oxygen that it produces. Suddenly our sense of well-being is calmed and we get back to this health. We, we, we draw nutrients and vegetables and, and fruit and all of our, our plant-based diet comes from, from plants. So We require it to thrive as much as anything else. That's Yeah. We're, we're humans living in it. So the moment we open our eyes and we see all this greenery, it becomes the greatest architectural magnet of all time. It doesn't matter how pretty the building is. When you add greenery, it just, it's, it's, it really is the magnet for the whole thing. So, and I think, you know, developers and architects and property people of, of the sorts and real estate agents are now starting to really embrace this idea. And the first photograph that they show on selling or marketing a property is not the building, it's the landscape. I know, I know. And it's where you live and it's all this connection to landscape and garden. It's like suddenly the architects are starting to take a back seat and the landscape's starting to take a front seat, particularly during this period of COVID where we've started to make this massive return to nature. Uh, Look, I I mean, if you looked at the cash register at Bunnings and and they were probably one of the garden centres that were open, the record sales that they took right through the lockdowns, or not the lockdowns, but that period, because people were in their own environments and their own environments started to come up short or they took the time to enhance them um, and to make them more sustainable because we don't know how long we're going to be in this situation and it won't be the last time either probably. So, I mean, there's been some awesome benefits from something like COVID. One of the things that you were saying before was about, you know, putting a a shroud of planting around a building or integrating it with the building so that you still get the light and the airflow. One of the things that I see when I travel globally is, is this, you know, mechanical air conditioning, you know, just running down this one road or heating um, and close it up, seal it, you know, and I come from the thing of open it up and let it breathe. But then you've got to do that sustainably as well so that you're not burning a whole bunch of fossil fuels on the other side mm-hmm. to heat it in another point. So, you know, mass walls and um, thermal walls and things like that. When you're doing a big project, like like the Port Douglas project, when you're doing something like that, how do you tackle that? Like what happens? Because it's, it's big <laughs> thinking to start with. So I think what's important about that project and even then taking that philosophy down to a standard three or four bedroom home is, is creating the atrium. And creating the atrium means that when the heat starts to move up through the building, it has somewhere to escape. But that's not enough. You've then got to look at the landscape that's inside the building and around the building 
so that just like the old water coolers that we used to use before air conditioning was developed, yep. the air needs to run through something cool. And if we go back to the earlier times, before refrigerators, they used to use capillary action and they used hessian. Mm-hmm. and the hessian would soak up the water and the air would run through the hessian and, and what came out the other side was five or six degrees cooler than what's on the inside. And that's how air conditioning and, I guess, refrigeration started. Yeah. So, so let's convert that piece of hessian that's soaked with water and imagine the water, imagine the air running through the hessian the same way it would run through a beautiful lush landscape. And let's wrap our buildings in landscape sustainable landscape that's native to the in, the 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 area. environment yeah so that we know that it's going to survive and it requires minimal chemicals and nutrients and so forth and water to to thrive so we've got a reliable buffer of green landscape that the water that the air can flow through into yep. the building and then when the hot air escape it's got nowhere else to go but to pull air in through our little hessian landscape yeah and suddenly that cool air is running through the landscape and we're going, oh, my God, we've just created a vacuum effect. Oh, my God, this is solar passive architecture. Now we're watching it work. Let's turn the air conditioners off, darling. Let's just see how this rolls for a minute because, you know, someone actually finally got it right. You know, when we settled here in Australia, we were settled with what, what, what's, what we would call, the, I guess, a European style of architecture. We were settled by the English. Yep. And, and we ended up with villas and... Yeah. Yeah. Houses like even thinking Queensland here, you know, houses that were just basically a hallway through the middle and yeah. basically two sides and off the ground so that it got some airflow. Yeah. I, I mean, I bought one of them when I first moved to Sydney. It was this shady little <laughs> dark uh, ex-soldier's cottage in Paddington in, in Sydney. And, uh, and, and it was dark and it was mouldy and it was depressing and it was void of any light and natural airflow. And the only way I could get air through it was to open the front door and the back door on a good day. And, you know, I was constantly fighting mould issues. Yeah. It just wasn't designed for our type of environment, you know. And, you know, Queensland, I think everybody fights mould issues. Yeah, yeah, the humidity is just outrageous. So, you know, it's 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 healthier. We're now finding out, you know, and there are laws now, obviously, that you, you would all be aware of in the design community the how, of how dangerous mould is. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to just spray it with exit mould. And, and, <laughs> and bleach to the problem. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, what we can't see, we don't know. And But actually, those spores have been causing damage for longer than we know. And, you know, Lend-Lease uh, recently picked up, you know, and, and, and supported the development of the Wellbeing Award, where we're now starting to look at everything we use in the house. You know, 50% of what we do at Jury Design is furniture design. So yep. we're, starting to look, we're starting to, you know, now qualify every piece of furniture that we create for any company in Italy, in the US, here in Australia. And we're, we're, we're reverse engineering. We're going, okay what is the impact of the material that we're using? Because what people don't realise is that the furniture fabrics, the textiles, the sponges, the paints, even the floor ester poles and the varnishes, they're all full of volatile organic compounds that go a long way towards reducing health um, for all of us that live in these homes that were designed way back when lead was allowed. Um, yes, yeah, so you think of lead paint and things like that. That was just yeah, it was part of the land. That was part of the landscape of building and yeah. um, and, and furniture is a massive culprit. Carpet. Yeah, and so you know we're now learning that oh wow these carpets are exuding volatile organic compounds every day and we're living in it. And is this carcinogenic? Has it played a role in cancer? I, I think so. Yeah, more than likely. Yeah, it's it's on the top end of the level rather than not yeah. just being discounted. I think it's um even with our like certainly paints and you know the the, the low VOCs and and making sure that what we do have um, is a sustainably made, but also um, is sustainable for thriving for your life to thrive. And we're right. it's hidden under so many insidious layers of yeah. of of pieces that it's very hard to pull it apart to see it clearly. Um, Yeah, and so we've got to move towards a future of reducing 
you know, getting to zero volatile organic compounds and ensuring that, that all of the building materials that we put out into the marketplace, we solved asbestos and yes. now silicosis, right? Yes. Now all of our kitchen bench, bench tops um, are full of this and, and all of the, the poor workers and the contractors that have been grinding away these uh, man-made marble bench tops um, are, are suffering the same sorts of issues that, that were... That, that were asbestos only 20 or 10 years before. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what is the future of building? What are the future of our building materials that we use? And how can we be more conscious about the way we move forward in the use of those materials? So that's, that's been re a really interesting space for us. The other one is if we are, as human beings, so in love with nature and so connected to nature, then what of the shapes and proportions of the pieces that we create are paying homage to nature. So the, the building that we developed for Port Douglas was based off two nautilus shells. Mm -hmm. And we created an elliptical shape off those two nautilus shells. And that in itself is an aesthetically pleasing shape that when viewed upon from the exterior, people can actually see a piece of nature and that we're actually paying homage to the natural yes. forms that exist in that particular area in the oceans and the reefs that surround that, that biomimicry of um of taking one and bringing it into the other that's it so biomimicry is really really the foundation of our of our design business because i i think i started in the study of horticulture and throughout that four-year period i had to I had to study and learn all, the, all of the botanical terms of 3,476 um, species, <laughs> all of their cultivars, their genus, um, where they were native to, what pH levels in the soils that require. Um, and then, of course, what size they're going to get to in the next 40 or 50 or 100 years when I'm gone. And in, in a, in, in a that, That's a point that really fascinates me. So we, we'll look back to that just when you, when you finish there because hmm. it grows. Yeah, it's, you know, it's tough working in the landscape design industry because we're not just designing with bricks and mortar, which stay the way that it was intended when we, they were first laid and they'll still be there when, in 100 years' time. These are living, breathing pieces of organic nature that are constantly growing and demanding larger root growth, larger, larger canopies. You know, we've got to make sure those canopies aren't overlaying the other ones so that everyone gets their own ray of sunlight um, yep. and we'll get to survive and thrive. So it's an ever-moving, ever-growing piece of organic architecture that we've got to predict when we design in the first place. So it's a very hard... It's complex. It, it, it is, yeah. It's a hard form of design. And do you, do you guys do um, a thing where you actually maintain the landscapes as well? Or obviously you have a program that somebody knows what's going to happen next. But we take, say, somewhere where you plant a tree and in 30 years' time we know it's growing a little. Um, and it might only have a lifespan of 50 years maybe. I don't know. You, you tell me. Um, but plants have a lifespan as well. Um, yeah. Um, so there are plants like acacia, um, acacia decurrens, acacia floribunda. All of our acacias are what we, what we call pioneer plants. Mm -hmm. Pioneer plants have a lifespan of around 15 years. And they're, they're called pioneer plants for a reason because they create lovely wide habitats. You've seen those images of the acacias in Africa and their foliage is like a tabletop, right? Sure. Yep. Like a giant umbrella. And yep. that's, what's that's what nature has intended to do because when the acacias throw out that, that, that umbrella style of canopy, what exists underneath that is what we call a microclimate. And that enables the shade and the nutrients and uh, the reverse transpiration uh, to keep the moisture in the soils and stop the erosion, the wind erosion, so that the plants underneath it can get a good start. And once they start to grow up through the canopies, they go, thank you very much, Mr. Acacia. You've done your job. High five, we'll move on. And they then create their own microclimates and then new acacias come up and that's the... And the it just keeps spreading. And, the, and so you get the spread of, of forest, I suppose. That's right. That's how, that's how forest regenerates. And, and so... Um, so those acacias have a very important system called nitrogen-fixing nodules. And those nodules can suck up nitrogen from soils that most other plants can't. And so they are the true survivors. They're the camels of the plant industry, if you like. Um, and so they, they are the ones that are well-equipped 
to be able to form those microclimate environments for the other ones to come up. And so, yes, your question to answer it originally is all plants have different life expectancies and you've got to predict how long and how old and how what their expiry date is. Um, mm. You know, uh, and and like um, I always think of, you know, you do your underplanting and stuff, but that's going to come through, and then you might remove a plant yeah. as the other comes through. If it's an acacia, it dies under the canopy of the other, but feeds the other yeah. um, as it as it dies. You know, so when you're doing a static environment like a big building, yeah. you have to you have to intervene with some management in there. Yes. Um, and, and that's it, but it's not a five year, well, it might be, it's a five year program, but it's a 50 year program, yeah. possibly even a hundred year program yeah. that, um, it, it, it develops. And, and there are, uh, there, there are several things to consider when you're actually starting to look at what's called plant placement. And I'm, I've always been, um, the put and look sort of guy where I would have the contractors go and lay out all of the plant stock on the landscape mm-hmm. in, in their vessels, in their grow bags. And let's look at how that arrangement looks because you need a certain, some plants have spectacular architecture, right? Like, like King bromeliads, like cycads. Um, like, yeah, they deserve um, space. They yeah, deserve, yeah. They, they, they form these beautiful architectural kind of living sculptures, if you like, in the landscape that pop up and become living ornaments and magnets within the landscape. And then you've got what's called fillers, and carpets and ground covers and all the other sorts of things that if you were starting to look at designing a living room, you would, you would still need to look at walls, ceilings, floors, dividers, you know, and plants have a lovely way of delivering the same sorts of architecture as what we look at in the architectural world. And so we have to design with shapes first and plants later on. But then when we choose those species, those those species need to create microclimates that are that enable the whole matrix of that plant installation to be fully successful and to maintain that intention for years beyond. Yeah, I, I'm hearing you. It's um, it, 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 it is. It's this moving forward thing. One of the other things you were talking about was. Um, you know, when, when you're saying about around a home or around a building where we, you know, do the Hessian idea of, of wrapping it, one of the things that I often say to clients is, um, you know, we, we, we want some gardens on the, say, west side here. Um, and we want this kind of level of canopy. And I don't know plants. I don't know them at all. But I want some sort of canopy here, but I want something down here that's going to hold some moisture in the land so that when we open these windows, this is where we're going to get this breeze is going to come through and it's going to come through a shaded area. Mm. Same with swimming pools. Really importantly, swimming pools with, first of all, they're a big body of water. The, the last purpose of them swimming, they've got this big body of water. Then how do you bring air from that into a home, a very calming, it's also a light source at night. If you light it, you know, often landscapes disappear at night or, or views disappear at night. Um, so you get all these things from it. And it's, it took me round in that circle of, you know, really focusing on where these landscape points are so that the house works to its maximum or the building works to its maximum um, efficiency with utilising the landscape rather than just making it green to make it look pretty or to make it more intimate, you know, like trees give a sense of intimacy and shelter and all the rest a lot like houses do. Designing a landscape is not unlike designing a building. Nobody likes to feel like they're out on a barren landscape um, fully exposed right? We, most of us like a wall behind us, mm-hmm. like, feel like we're included in a room. Um, I think we're starting to move away from, from, from the, the 1980s statement of open plan living. Mm-hmm. And, and in my opinion, compartmentalization is not a dirty word. Um, I love to compartmentalize the landscape as I do in concept architecture as well, because what happens <clears throat> in when you start to compartmentalise people is you give them a a sense of space. You give them um, walls around them and a roof overhead to make them feel, everyone wants to feel cradled and nurtured and protected. Supported and protected, yep. Supported and secure. And so landscapes have a lovely way of delivering that. 
And you can do that two ways. You can do that with a series of dense planting and canopy over the top and ground covers below, or you can start to do that with a change of level. And I think a change of level is one of the most powerful tools in a designer's toolbox. Because once you start to shift levels, you define the space, yep. you invite people in, into the topography, um, you, you, you then start to look at retaining walls and interior sunken landscapes where you are starting to architecturally invite people to sit within the landscape. And you can do that in banquet seating in hotels and restaurants, right? You're architecturally inviting them to stay a while and enjoy a beautiful meal. Yes. It's the same philosophy, it's just in the outside. So, um, so I, I'm, ne I'm never really thinking about the outside if I'm designing on the inside and, and I'm thinking about the outside if I'm designing on the inside. Yes. I'm, I'm totally reversing both spaces. They're never, they're never separated. They're, you know, one's determining the other constantly. But you're drawing from the exterior to design the interior and yep. you're drawing from the interior to design the exterior. <laughs> <laughs> that I think when you start to get the true crossover and, you know, I've often been called a frustrated architect by a lot of my staff over the last 24 years and I am. Um, because I'm very passionate about blurring those boundaries and starting to get people thinking about both spaces, not just one. And yes, not, not, not as separate spaces, not as one's disconnected from the other. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you can do that in London where you've got a park down the road, but you're, you're stuck in a flat sort of thing. Um, yeah. They're separate spaces, but when you actually got the ability to have them together, yeah. I remember my first trip ever to Hawaii and um, I went, into a hotel and there was no doors or no wall. There were walls holding up the rest of the building, but the foyer and the, um, the reception, everything was open, was just open air. And I was like, there's no doors here. Like, and that was my first probably experience of experiencing uh, on a grand scale landscape and building becoming one. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a very simple way to achieve that. If we start to look at the central lobby of that hotel that you walked into, and we start to break down five-metre apertures every four metres so that you've got these blade walls that are supporting the roof overhead, structural integrity, tick. Openings to the aperture in the exterior landscape, tick. Natural light and ventilation, tick. And those walls that we took away, those four-metre voids, where do they end up? Well, let's stick those on the boundary yep. and, and let's convert those concrete walls into five metre high Eloia carpus Yamundii, which grows very well in your area and, and will deliver you a 40-foot green wall planted at probably 1,800 centres. So there's a plant out there to deliver every piece of architecture that you can possibly imagine. And if we start to take away the walls of the dwelling and we put it on the exterior boundaries, well, suddenly now that hotel lobby just got so much bigger because the boundaries are now on the exterior of the property and yep. we're starting to bring the landscape visually and mentally into the, the, the lobby because every four metres we're getting another shot, another vista of what's beyond and it's, it's pulling us out visually from the lobby and we're not compartmentalised into that small space. I love that. I love that. I love that thinking of, um, of just that shape-shifting and... Often the shape-shifting is thought of in the built structure as opposed to, as you say, in the landscape structure of how that's going to support the next piece. And um, they got it right when they developed the, the hacienda. Mm -hmm. And the hacienda wrapped around the garden mm -hmm. and the garden sat inside the house. And I often say to people, you know, true exclusivity is when you can walk around completely naked in your landscape. Um, and this is what I've done for a lot of my Hollywood clients because no one likes prying eyes and and drones and, <clears throat> and you know, long lenses. So yeah. everyone wants to feel like their garden should be an extension of their home and if they want to go outside and um, pick some basil in their underwear, then they can, right? So um, you've got to work hard at pulling the curtains off your house, allowing yourself to see the landscape and then putting those curtains on the boundaries of your property in the form of a living, breathing landscape. Mm. Then, and then you truly do have a garden and a home that is symbiotic and, and cohesive and, uh, and, and fully usable. 
you know, we paid a lot of money for our land, so let's exploit that uh, and let's use every square inch of it. I'm tired of seeing these giant front yards in suburbia <laughs> all the way through housing plots that are, that are constantly thrown, you know, with all sorts of chemicals and nutrients and, and we've got nitrogen runoff where all the nitrogen's landing in the yeah. and, it's, and, it's, and the nitrogen's running down the streets. It's p- picking up all the diesel, all the toxins, all the motor oil, all the petrol, hydraulic fluid, and then all of that's been picked up and thrown to our stormwater systems and then suddenly we've shoved it out into our oceans for our, our fish and our coral to choke on, right? Why aren't we pushing the boundaries of our homes, the, the actual perimeters of our homes, more to the boundaries of our homes and taking up some of that valuable front yard space and converting that into the centre of our homes so that yes. we've now got this private landscape that's just for the family. Palm Springs style. Palm Springs style, yeah. I mean, I used to spend my weekends there um, over the last 15 years. I've, I've spent so many years in Palm Springs and summers over there. I just love that form of architecture. And I think it's, there's a lot to learn from in Palm Springs with Australian architecture. And the, um, the French did it very well as well with buildings and the Italians do it as well. They build like with a courtyard to the centre. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, like it... it if you go back to desert architecture, I mean, they did it there to protect their animals and stuff, but the same thing, put a fountain in the middle, start that environment in the middle and then green it up and then have your buildings yeah. surrounding it and then bring your have your towers to get air out and bring your cool air in from the middle out and, and circulate it out like this. Um, you know, the reason we're starting to get far more business on the architectural front where developers and and architects are starting to come to us and say, hey, can you give us a shape to start with first and then we'll get on with it. So if, if, if the architects back in the Hacienda days or the French uh, times that you're talking about where, you know, 16th, 17th um, um, century buildings were designed with landscapes in the middle, if those architects weren't on board with that in the first place, those yeah. environments would never have happened. Yeah, I think there's this return now to, okay, landscape team, what type of building do we need to create to make this a true indoor-outdoor uh, landscape that is human-friendly, planet-friendly? I think it's so important. It's um, I'm currently designing a house that uh, has a whole lot of courtyards um, and you know, bridges and courtyards, so it's pavilion sort of style. It's on acreage, so you get the opportunity to do that. To design a house where you're doing it on a urban block yep. gets a bit more challenging, and then you've got to bring light wells in. And um, again, it's the same thing, though. That's what architecture is about. That's the the beauty of it. Yeah, I've got a last question for you. Sure. Only one last project. This is it. You've got one last project to ever complete mm. and you can't do another one. You can't influence anybody else. You can't talk to anybody else about anything else. It's one last project. I, in the same way, but for a very different reason, that Las Vegas was created by a bunch of entrepreneurs who wanted to extend their, their interests in gambling. <laughs> I, I would like to move out to a remote area of Australia and extend our interest in sustainable rural living. We've got so much land in this country and so much disused space. Why are we all stacking on top of each other when actually now we work very, very well remotely? Been trained for the last eight months for that. Yeah, we're, we've just been through boot camp and I'm <laughs> bloody good at it now. Um, I'm sure you are too. I think we've all become a lot better at uh, Microsoft Teams and all sorts of things like Zoom. And, exactly. And, and actually it, 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 it keeps the client very engaged. Have you noticed yeah. you're presenting drawings and documentation now? They're forced to look at your screen because if they lose eye contact, they look insincere or not engaged. And if they start to take a phone call in the middle of a meeting, you can see it right away. Right? It's, so it's actually a very honest why they can't it? even answer emails and stuff while they're on there because you can yeah. see what they're doing, yeah. Yeah, you're all over it. You're like, hey, is there a better time to do this meeting? Yeah, exactly. So, but you get through stuff better as well because there's less distractions. Yeah, so let's get back to the big vision, which is I want to, I, I want to collaborate with a, with a property developer who 
um, feels passionate about creating low-cost, low-impact, sustainable communities, and I want to build a green town that has all of the philosophies that we've been talking about for the last hour. Um, sustainable, low VOC materials, low-cost buildings, scalable prefab buildings where, where you start small as a young married couple and you only need two or three pods and then as you as you have more children you start to add more pods to that to that dwelling but guess what it's all invested into this beautiful topography which is a living breathing landscape and a series of microclimates that even in the harshest of environments out in central australia uh, out there. Yeah. Or rural australia we are starting to control those microclimates with a series of strategic planting and strategically placed buildings that give us the people pockets and the nature pockets that, that make this a much more livable, sustainable place to be. And if we can start to break the mould of conditioning and, and stop um, this, this constant urban stacking that mm -hmm. we're obsessed with and start to look at these rural communities through sustainable eyes that, that, that have this um, visionary statement of going, well, we really do have the ability, the infrastructure and the knowledge now to start to make these rural environments with bloody cheap land um, much, more, yes. much more environmentally friendly and much more usable. Wow, what a future our children and their children will have. Oh, I, I just my, love it. I go, my first thought was, That'd be Jamie. He's not going to say, I want to design this little place over here. It's, it's grand scale, um, which I love. And, but it, it's legacy in the sense that it, it, it goes on from, from you to, to onwards and onwards and onwards. And I, I really see like the challenges is for a developer or a set of developers to go, Hey, you know, like, let's do this thing. Let's prove this thing yeah. and work out the, the economics on how many, people it takes to uh, create that space to make it a, a living hub you know you think of something like Silicon Valley how it's like a living hub it's got enough of whatever it is for commerce and everything else yeah. to exist in that place and bring people to that place yeah. it sounds um, sounds beautiful yeah and I think you know that, that you know we've we have managed on this planet to grow extraordinary things in extraordinary places Yep. Um, look at the Eden Project in that giant uh, bubble over there in Cornwall in England. Yep. Um, you know, look at, what, look at what's happened in garden, Gardens by the Bay in Singapore, now the most visited tourist attraction of all time. Look at what's happening in Highline, New York, the $72 million floating garden. People want to live within nature. If we, if we break the mould and create the template for a sustainable town, sustainable cities, in areas where young couples can get a start and own their own piece of Australia. Um, wow, that's a legacy I'd love to be behind. And as you say, the land out there is worth what, how many cows you can put on it. It's not worth the, the dirt's nothing. It's the number of cows it can support. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's amazing when you just take that, that, that cost of that, that main cost of that piece of land, yeah. reduce it right down, yeah. and then it's got a, a foothold to grow from. Yeah, I love that answer. Absolutely love that answer. I'm sure you've got a lot to do for a man that's flying to uh, New York on Friday. <laughs> um, I so appreciate your time, Jamie. It has been beyond the conversation we had before. This has been just mind blowing. And, you know, with the audience out there, um, go and look at Jamie's work, go and dig it out find it we'll put all the socials all the contacts that you can find for jamie's um companies and work and his philosophies and i'm sure that if you couldn't be inspired by what jamie's just told you even on the lowest level if you're a home gardener who just wants to grow a couple of cactuses if you couldn't be inspired by that then you really really need to um take a deeper look at what it takes to get you moving because that was a feast that was <laughs> it was more than a smorgasbord. <laughs> good on you. Jamie, thank you so much, man. And travel safe, eh? My pleasure. And good luck with the projects, bud. Yeah, thank you, mate. Really yeah. exciting, really exciting. I'll be looking in for those. Maybe we'll get you back to talk about fire landscapes at some point. I'd love that. Yeah, look, anytime. We've, done, we've just done one in California, which is 14 acres on a private property, which will be 
the most fireproof landscape in California. That would be fascinating to dig into, especially with what's going on in California now and what we've had in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. Good on you. Thank you again. Cheers, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, Why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.